Welcome to episode two of Revive. Last week's launch was incredible. We've had listeners in five different countries, which blows my mind. And the response has been so encouraging. And I'm so grateful and thankful that you guys took the time to listen and to rate and review and to share. It's not lost on me. And what's really, really cool is we're just getting started. This week's episode is with my friend Jody. And Jody was raised in the Institute and Basic Life Principles Organization, also known as the IBLP. And that might sound familiar to you if you've seen the documentary Shiny Happy People featuring the Duggar family. This was the same cult that the Duggar family was involved in. Jody shares about the family dynamic of being raised in this, but also living at one of these institutions and her firsthand experience with the founder who was also kind of this godlike figure, Bill Gothard, and the abuse that she experienced, as well as how that has impacted her life since and her faith journey and her marriage and her parenting. And she's so transparent and her story. And I think that this is so impactful for anyone that has experienced pain or hurt at the hands of a religious institution. And what's really beautiful about her story is she explains how she untangled the lies from the truth and how she really had to go on this journey of deciphering if the belief was incorrect or if the implication created by imperfect humans was where the issue lied. And anyone who comes from a faith background, I think, has struggled and wrestled with the faith of their youth and their childhood and what that looks like once they have experienced life. So let's jump right into it with Jody from House on a Sugar Hill. Jody, thank you for being willing to chat today. Um, it's funny, whenever I initially wanted to reach out to you about being on the podcast, it was something completely different okay. than what we're yeah, than what we're actually gonna talk about now. Cause I just wanted to talk about, you know, how navigating the last several years of mm-hmm. your life and some changes, big changes, family changes. Oh, yeah. And then you started sharing <laughs> about being raised in a cult. (laughs) And I was like, okay, you can't just drop that and then us not talk about it. Um, It was so funny because I shared that online and that's such an, you know, it's a part of my history and I don't think about it often. But then when I put it online, I couldn't believe how many people who are so close to me were like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? You have never shared this with me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it feels just normal and in the past. And it's mm-hmm. not like when I meet you, I'm like, hi, I'm Jody. And and when I was younger, I was raised in a cult, right? You just kind of move on. So I found that reaction really funny. And then thinking, oh, wow, I guess, you know, how many other things about other people do I not know or they about me? I just thought it was hilarious. Totally. Well, yeah, I mean, you talked about it. Like, yeah, when I was in middle school, I played volleyball. And <laughs> right, like, right. When I was in elementary school. I was raised <laughs> in a cult. <laughs> um, but it's wild the things that are so normal to us mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. when we actually talk about them and open up about them, we realize maybe aren't as normal yes. as we think that they are. 100%. So can you give us just a little background um, about – who you are and why you decided to start talking about this part of your life. (laughs) Absolutely. So I am a single mom of four incredible, amazing kids. This year, school just started. I have one going into college. I have one in high school. I have one in middle school and I have one in elementary school. So we spaced these kiddos out perfectly so that we could just dabble in every single school (laughs) system out there. It's so fun and exciting. No, but it really is great. And they're incredible. So I, you know, that's my number one thing is raising these kiddos. And then I have a brand that I created a few years ago and it has all sorts of fast it's to it, as I'm sure you can imagine, or you know, Amanda, because of what mm-hmm. you do. So I have an internet presence online and my brand house on a sugar hill. And then I do design work. And then I do commercial photography and video work for brands. So I do a whole lot of different things. Overall, I just get to um, 
work from home, which I love. And I get to dabble in design and art and share parts of my story, which is what I'm really, really passionate about. So I've been doing that for the last about five years. And um, recently, I've been going through so many internal changes because I was like we'll get into, was raised in this very, very extreme way of thinking. I had a pretty extreme upbringing, got married really young. Um, Me and my husband, we were married for 18 years, had a wonderful family together, but everything that we had brought into this marriage and this family was breaking down underneath the surface. And so um, our marriage ended, which then created so many more questions for me. And I had to go on this whole journey of rediscovering, again, who am I? What do I believe? Where am I headed in life? And I was able, unfortunately and fortunately, to do some of that online publicly, which was kind of an experience in and of itself. Um, And as I've taken all of these steps on this journey, I continue to be changed and continue to become stronger and lighter at the same time, if that's a combination Mm -hmm. that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And it's been so difficult, but so helpful and healthy. And so recently, and this is why I shared about that call, is the documentary Shiny Happy People came out. And it's about my experiences. It was so wild. I watched that documentary last month, I believe. And it was as if someone had uh, old, old, what were those called? Those old video cameras? Do you remember the official name? Like BC? Uh, A camcorder. Yeah. Somebody had, yeah, camcorder. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they pointed it into some of the most painful parts of my childhood, right? And they're highlighting it and the whole world is watching it. And it was really difficult to watch this documentary. In fact, I I did it. I binged, I think, the whole thing in one night. Maybe it took two, but probably one. And I was viscerally affected by this because of all of the emotion and memories that this brought up to see these faces again, people that were in my parents' living room and people that I sat across the table from and there they are, right? And had a horrible night and wrestled through a horrible night, I will say, because I laid in bed, I remember that night and thinking, I mean, it's everything that I think and believe false, right? Because this mm. this premise and these people affected me so much in my childhood. How much are they still affecting me now? Is this something I need to like, not the cult, but I'm just talking about my beliefs mm-hmm. now, right? Like it just made me question everything, probably because it was bringing up so much from my childhood. And then I took some time after that to really think through and process through what was going on inside of my heart and realize, you know, if I have this, this arise for me where I'm questioning everything, as I see the abuses that people can use who have power, they combine power and religion, how, how many more people are struggling with this? So then I just decided to share a little bit of my story and a little bit of my journey about why or and how I've navigated this imperfectly, and I'm still on that journey, but why I still choose to have a faith and what mm-hmm. that actually looks like practically. And it was really cool to share because I don't often share like that on social media. I don't, my my social media account isn't faith-based. It's a, it's a broad design and DIY, but it was wild what a chord it struck with people. And there were so many questions and people wanting to know more and specifics. And I think, well, it's because it's very scary. It's not often that people are able to bring like the painful parts of themselves and and, and expose it to the world right that like that. But those things, those details, sometimes are the things that can be really, really helpful for other people, but nobody's talking about them. So I just wanted to talk about some of them. Like, hey, what can I bring to the table? That might be just a nugget or a piece that somebody could take if they're struggling with the same thing. And maybe that will help them along their journey. And um, I just found it a really, really interesting topic to engage. So it's opened up a whole can of worms that I didn't know to expect, but I'm here for it. Yeah. And that's something that I can even relate to what you're saying, because I hadn't even heard of the documentary until Mm. I saw you share something about it. And then I went and watched it. I texted my mom after watching Mm -hmm. it. I was like, hey, uh, did 
did we know about this or whatever? And apparently my grandparents were very aware slash engaged and because there was so much in that documentary that remind me of my own childhood and then what you were sharing. And obviously not to, for us, it wasn't to the same extreme because we weren't actually in that. But I think a lot of people that were raised in the conservative Southern Baptist church, yes, um, Yes. you know, probably can relate to different elements of, of this. So can you give just kind of hit on the high points of the the theology and kind of the basic beliefs of the IBLP and what that stands for and just a little bit about what that is? Sure. I can try. It's extensive. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll, tr- we'll do like as broad as, as an overview as yes. I can. So IBLP stands for the Insist- Institute in Basic Life Principles. And why this is different from a church, in my opinion, and many people's opinion, is that the leader of this and the and the man who formed this, his name is Bill Gothard. He really, he came up with all of these principles that he declared were extrapolated from the Bible and they were his own revelation of how to make your life make sense, how to keep you safe, how to keep your children safe. And if you applied these principles to your life to the letter, then nothing bad should happen to you, theoretically. If you stray from them, then you have opened yourself up to the floodgates of hell in this life and the next. And so it's such an interesting thing to research. I was doing some research after I watched the documentary to try to remind myself of what these beliefs were. And so many of them, like you said, Amanda, are so close to what is taught in many, many churches. And a lot of them are coming straight from the Bible. But what happened was he took them and he put these very, very interesting and um, stringent regulations around these, these texts from the scripture. And then really, if you were part of it and, the, and deeper and deeper you went to it, you were required to abide by all of these wild rules. So the biggest premise is this idea of authority that he will teach about. And so his idea of authority is that um, God obviously is is top authority. But then in a home, there's different structures of authority, but how it was hitting all of us as children and and, um, families that were involved in this, because this was a lot of a family um, organization. It was the man was, you know, ultimate authority, then the woman, and then the child, which, okay, probably a lot of us are familiar with that, like you said, even if you were raised in church. But how this practically played out was that you actually did not have a voice if you were a woman and you were not allowed. And there was this fear of God that was struck in your heart to even voice any dissent if there was something toxic or wrong that was going on. So this authority structure is set into place, right? A lot of us are probably pretty familiar with this, whether or not we agree with it, but it is what it is, right? But then what made this different is that all of these other ideas started getting sifted and laced into this concept of authority. So for instance, um, women, according to Bill Gothard's ideology, are being worldly or a sinner if they work outside of the home. And so these daughters were raised in a way and taught specifically that your role, the, your purpose in life, and the reason why you were created is to support a husband. And you will never be living your full, your full purpose unless you are living in that. And, and to pursue anything else is to pursue something that is not God's will for your life. Okay, so then these girls and these daughters were raised in this environment where Our education, for the most part, and the aim of it was to become a great housewife. And very, very, um, and I'm not just saying this in in an ideology sort of way, like very specifically, right? Like how to raise, raise children and how to change diapers and how to care for the home. So these are, again, these are ideas that maybe we're familiar with, but how it played out inside of this cult is similar to what it's like when you're watching the Hulu show, The Handmaid's Tale, if you've watched that before. How extreme that is, 
they were not the same beliefs, but that's our lives were actually lived out in such an extreme way that if this is the belief that we've created and that this man is saying, this is God's will, then you live every single day. You purpose your entire life, your family's culture and how you engage with culture around these beliefs. So we were another, uh, very strong, belief was that women should wear skirts, very, very, very long skirts to the ground. So we were required to dress um, very extreme in that way. Uh, You were not allowed to date in this culture. So ideally, two fathers would find a a suitable man for the woman, and then they would um, communicate and match you up. And then you get to meet your blessed, blessed husband. It goes on and on and on. The implications of it are very extreme, but it had a very strong bent towards sexuality, which I think is interesting. Hmm. And so they they were very much about a woman monitoring her sexuality. Women were almost looked at as these temptresses. Mm-hmm. And if you don't adhere to certain rules, you're actually playing into this narrative of this home wrecker, this like awful Jezebel. And so, and some of this, again, like it does depend on how deeply you were involved in this institution. We were, okay. So if you were from a one to a 10, right? Our family, I would say for a long time was about a three. So we were, we were pretty deep into it. And then especially when I was sent to live there, um, it, it was like a, a full on, we're at a one. And so there were, th- there were things called shirt checks that I had to do in the mornings where I'd get dressed and then I had to jump in front of a mirror. And if my boobs like moved, you could see them move, then my shirt was too tight. And so I had to change for the day. And if you were caught outside with clothing that was revealing in that way, even just that it showed the shape of your boob mm-hmm. more excessively than was, you know, actually Mm -hmm. had to happen, then you were sent away to change. But really, even even beyond that, you were looked at or viewed at as this temptress, this Mm -hmm. horrible harlot with a with this terrible dark heart, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're constantly monitoring monitoring yourself, constantly trying to make sure that you're not causing anybody any lustful thoughts. Also was taught that men had this or have this um, insatiable lust that they truly cannot control. So it is a woman's role to control that, whether she's not married to him, right? In the way that she behaves around him. We weren't allowed to talk to boys at this institute, not allowed. And, and But then conversely, if you're married, then it's your job to satisfy this man sexually however he would like. Like you're, it's taught, again, they took all these verses out of scripture and then they would, they would, um, put these rules around it. So there's this verse in the Bible that says your bodies are not your own, right? Okay. It means something very broad. In Bill Gothard land, it meant like there, you really don't, your body is not your own. If your husband says, lay down, do this, do that, whatever it is, you do it. It it goes on and on and on and on and on. And we had these for our homeschool program because we were homeschooled in this. Um, They were, I believe, 52 wisdom booklets that you cycled through every single year. And it just taught this stuff over and over and cycle through these year after year after year. So we're reading the same things over and over again. Another verse, I believe in the Old Testament, and I should have probably, before I say anything about it, read it and and verify what exactly it says, because I can't remember now. But I remember the implications as a kid learning this. And it was something to the effect that if you are a woman and you are raped, and you don't cry out for help, then you are as responsible as this man in this rape. And I remember learning this as a child and listening to it and being terrified because I know when I'm scared, I get quiet. I don't start screaming. And then I would think if I get raped, it's going to be my fault, right? And the implications of that, Amanda, is my fault on this earth and my fault in the life to come. So it was just like fear after fear after fear continued to be layered on on us in order to comply to these rules and these regulations that when you step back and you take a really broad look at it all, create an environment of power for those who have created it to give themselves almost limitless power, almost limitless, unquestioned power. And those who are underneath it lose their voice 
more and more and more and more and become more vulnerable. And that's what happened as people lived this out and created families and created organizations around it. That's just the implication of it because that was the premise of it. What about the institution? What about the belief system do you think was attractive to families and people like your parents and the others who, you know, got deeply involved with the institution um, because you want to believe that, you know, our parents were doing the best that they could with what they knew and the tools that they were given. So do you have any idea what initially drew them to the institution? I do. And I also want to premise this. My parents did, I believe, and still do have the best intentions. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, as an adult myself and as a parent myself, I understand that it is difficult to know how to navigate a family through changes in culture and changes of ages and all of that. But I think the best I can answer for someone else, because they may say something completely different, was that this whole IBLP organization came on the scene uh, right after the 60s when the sexual revolution was running rampant and almost came in as an answer Mm. to keeping yourself and your family safe from all of these new ideas. And the answers were to apply the Bible, particularly the Old Testament rules in very specific ways to your life. And if you do that, you will be blessed by God and you will be safe from harm and all of the evils that we see around us in the world. And it was very much geared to parents because at the time, if you can imagine being a parent at that time, you're looking around and culture shifting, Mm -hmm. you've got teenagers and you're thinking, what can I do? And Bill Gothard came on the scene and truly said, I have these special revelations from God and I have the secrets for your family that will keep them safe. And so, and he would do these very broad conferences. He went all over with these conferences. He spoke to so many people and it drew thousands and thousands of people in. And his ideas, obviously, this is how these these cult-like or cult uh, organizations work. They look good from the gate, right? Nobody comes in with all of this toxicity and says, hey, got the answers for you. Look at it, become an oppressive organization or family, right? Mm -hmm. We don't start like that or we don't introduce ourselves like that. We introduce ourselves as pure and righteous and, you know, a better way of living, a superior way of living. Like, look how great this could be for your family. And even if you go on the website, which you can still do because it's still up, you can start reading through all their basic principles. And I did this recently and I'm like, damn, Hmm. I can see how people would be drawn into this, Mm -hmm. right? They're not sharing some of the things like blanket training your child, which if you saw the documentary, Mm -hmm. you saw that where you, you know, uh, one of the things to do since you need to teach your child that they need to submit to authority, no questions asked, is you would put your young baby on a blanket and put a toy just out of reach. And when they tried to reach for the toy, you'd spank their hand or hit their hand, teaching them that if they're in this position, on blanket, blanket time means don't move, don't do anything, don't, well, ignore your impulses and ignore your instinct, essentially, is what it teaches you. If mom and dad say so, then you better stay in line, stay on that blanket. From very, very young age, you know, they're teaching this kind of like brainwashed control to to children, but they're not leading with that. They're leading with how to um, apply biblical truth to your life. This is going to make your life better. When were you like, okay, this is, something is off. Something is not Mm. right about this. When did you start questioning everything? Mm. That's a good question. So I was, I was raised in my, my, let me just preface this a little bit about what it was like as I was growing up inside of this organization. Um, I'm one of 11 children. I'm eight born because this, this belief system also teaches that you should have as many children as you possibly can. And so I was eighth born, was homeschooled. Um, My parents were very, very diligent and dedicated uh, to teach us the Bible, right? Because that was the ultimate authority. And so what they did, and this is actually great. This was, I really appreciate that they did this. They taught us how to study it. So they taught us, they would, they actually taught us Greek. Um, They, 
taught us how to use things like concordances and how to search up the root of some of these old, old, old ancient words, how to find different connections in the Bible so you can understand implications and what this means. And so as I became a little bit older, probably 12, 13, right, when you start thinking for yourself, I was researching what this meant and I was drawing parallels to different parts of the Bible and it seemed to me pretty clear that what we were te- what I was learning or being taught from IBLP was not what the Bible was teaching. It was actually almost exactly the opposite. So I started to see this in a different light as I got a little bit older into my early, early teen age years. I started questioning a lot of things. Uh, now in the organization, one of their ethics is to not question those in authority. So it actually wasn't appropriate for me to be questioning. I created a stigma for myself, whether in my family or whether in the organization that I was a rebel, right? Mm. I, I wasn't falling in line to these belief systems. I was doing it with a genuine heart, not not in the in the with the goal or with the uh, heart to just throw away mm-hmm. everything that I was being taught, but I really wanted to understand it. But that honestly wasn't an acceptable way to live or think. And so I remember um, at a certain point, <laughs> this is one of them, I'll, I'll give you a funny example, um, were taught in these wisdom booklets that women should not wear men's clothes and men should not wear women's clothes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, there's this verse way back in the old testament they pulled it out and then they say see this verse this means women need to wear skirts and they need to be to your ankles it's like okay where'd you get that that's a little weird right and so i remember going to my parents and being like hi hi mom and dad just kidding that's not how i I approach that uh but bringing it up and saying okay i understand that there are skirts in the women's department but there are also pants and shorts right so like, why am I only allowed to wear skirts if the the verse says just don't, you know, like it doesn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you seem to think that this would mean don't shop in the guy's section, even that's a little sure. off. Why not? But if we're going to take the verse for the verse, why can't I wear pants? And there wasn't a great answer for it at the time, but I, I would study the scripture, I think a lot. And I remember there, there is a verse in the new Testament that says, uh, anything that is not of faith is sin, right? And so I would tell my parents, I actually think that's wrong. And if I think that's wrong, according to this verse, I shouldn't do it. And so I started um, not complying with things I thought was wrong right? about this. Yeah. And they didn't have a lot of recourse. And I mean, I hope it's hard for me to, to remember a lot of the responses. So I can't say accurately, but I think what I would hope for um, and give the benefit of the doubt is that my parents respected that, right? Because I wasn't, I wasn't attempting to buck their whole system per mm-hmm. se, but I did want to do it genuine, genuinely and honestly. And if I was going to say that I was a follower of Jesus, I wanted that to come from what I understood that to mean and not mm. what was being taught to me that I thought was wrong. That's when I started questioning it. I, I started to create this genre or this um, stigma for myself that I was the rebel. I was the bad girl. My, you know, I'm like one of eight girls and we're all out in public and my sisters are all wearing long skirts and I'm wearing jeans. I was the kind of the problem child. And I don't know if my parents necessarily at the time knew what mm-hmm. to do with that. Where in this time frame and do you think that attributed to you being sent away and that was that's something that you've mentioned and I would love if you could just Mm -hmm. give us a little insight what that means and the reason for that um all over the U.S. IBLP or Bill Gothard had bought up properties and then had converted them to uh these living quarters that were were used to host these huge conferences that he would put on, but also a lot of people who are in this cult lived there, like constantly. That was their home. So they a lot of times were old hotels, right? And each hotel room were people's homes. And wow. I was sent away for one of the conferences. And I wanted to go actually to the, the one of the conferences that I went to. And while I was there, I believe I was 14. While I was there, at the end of the conference, Bill Gothard would open 
the platform up for question and answers. Bill Gothard was like a god to everyone in the organization. It was a massive, massive organization. It was like he was unreachable, untouchable. He heard from God. He was perfect, right? So he's this archetype of a man. He had opened his the the stage up to question and answers. I I go up to ask him a question, can't even remember what it was about. And he looks at me and he says, I would like to talk to you more about this. Please come see me in my office tonight. And so I said, okay. So I do it. And interestingly enough, and this became a theme because I ended up living there. I I fell in line after the conference, long line of girls lined up outside his office to talk to him. And they all looked the same. They were all thin, long blonde hair, pretty faced girls. And that was it. And this conference was, you know, there were thousands of people, all types of people, but the only ones who were called back were girls that looked like I did when I was a teenager. So I fall into line. And when it's my turn, I get in there and I'm sitting across the desk from this God-like figure in my life. It was wild that I was even there. And I share a little bit of my story. And I, he asks me some of what I'm into and what are my friends are like. And then he makes this decision based upon what I said that I should stay and live at this compound indefinitely. He picks up the phone. Again, my parents had sent me for, I don't know, a four-day conference. I'm not sure how long it was. He picks up the phone. My parents are in Michigan at the time. I'm in Indianapolis. And my parents pick up on the other line, and it was like the president of the United States was calling you. I'm not kidding you. That's what it would be like. Like, it was unheard of. And it's Bill Gothard, and he wants to talk to my dad. And he says, hi, I'm sitting in my office with Jody. I just talked to her. I think she's getting into some trouble at home, and I think she would be better off here living here for an unspecified amount of time and my dad agrees hangs up the phone and the next thing i know my parents show up with a suitcase full of clothes and i'm moved into my i'm permanently moved into one of the hotel rooms at this particular training center that's what they were called training centers this one was for lits which was their version of a a juvie home like court ordered minors to be rehabilitated for society, right? What Bill Gothard told me and told my parents was, Jody's not getting into any real trouble, but I think her heart, right, Mm -hmm. is in Mm -hmm. the right place. That was the rebel. Um, So we're going to unofficially make her an LIT. And so she's going to track with these court-ordered children who were sent here and treated as such. Because you liked wearing jeans? Yes, because I wore jeans and I questioned authority. I questioned my authority. There were kids there. it, It was a pretty... Not all of them were were super rough. I remember there were two boys from Russia, I think, that were set there when I was there who who had done a school shooting. So there were like some pretty intense children there that I was put with. And I had a 20-year-old woman that was assigned to me 24-7. I couldn't be outside of her presence unless I was working. And so they essentially worked us at this compound probably i mean night today morning till evening doing what uh we ran the compound so in the mornings we we all were assigned different duties so either i was cooking in the mornings or i was doing dishes everyone was either cooking or doing the dishes in the mornings and then housekeeping was a huge one that they sent a lot of the girls to do, sure. right so you just clean and cleaned and cleaned and they had people coming and going so you're like a maid right for this hotel cleaning all the doing all the bedding or you're set to the laundry rooms right and it's a laundry like a laundry room at a hotel so you're doing all the laundry all the bedding all the towels for hundreds and hundreds of rooms i remember one time my most exciting job that i remember (laughs) was upholstery and they had all this furniture there and sometimes it would break down and then we'd have to reupholster it so i got sent to the reupholstery is that when do you think that's why your career is what it is now? I, it could play a part in it. It could definitely play a part in it. The sad thing is, Amanda, I don't have a ton of very clear memories of mm. this. Um, but the best I can remember, we I think we were woken up sometime at I don't know, 545 or six. We were woken up to this like really loud trumpet music that blasted in everyone's rooms because we were only allowed to listen to classical music. That was another one of our rules. We worked until the evening. There was a few hours of school, but very marginal. Maybe from what I remember, maybe like two or three hours of schooling. And then we worked till an hour before bedtime. 
I believe that's true. I can't quote myself on that because um, I don't have all the memories, but that's as best as I can remember. And then um, one, one thing I did find out later is that there were lawsuits filed against them for child neglect and child abuse shortly after I left. Um, and they didn't ever come to fruition. I don't think they, I don't know why I should probably research that a little bit more, but, but that was my life for an unspecified amount of time. I don't, I truly don't even remember how long I was there. Do you struggle with resenting your parents for allowing this or mm. how is there not you know, like that inner struggle there? This is such a, such a multidimensional answer mm -hmm. for you because on one hand, what we were taught from a very young age is to not harbor bitter, mm. bitterness. It was one of our tenets, right? And they would teach it in the sense of like bitterness rots the bones. So if you are bitter at your parents or at someone who has wronged you, you actually will get sick and you'll probably die. So don't be bitter, right? And so I was taught from a very young age to utilize really positive things like gratitude. There are a lot of other things like that. So I, I had this unhealthy, very, very unhealthy way to deal with this kind of uh, treatment that caused me to think positively. Mm -hmm. So that's one answer to that. That didn't, that didn't last forever. Another side of this, and this is something that we didn't get into, and this is something I really appreciate my parents for as well, is that they, they taught us how to study the Bible. They also taught us how to pray in a very specific way. And so they would they would teach us something called listening prayer, where you would talk to God, like I would talk to you, and then you're quiet and then you listen. I had a few experiences doing that. And then a few dreams when I was uh, middle, in middle school that revolutionized my thinking. And what it did, it gave me, it gave me a different perspective and it gave me a different picture. I'll tell you one of the dreams. That's probably the best way to do it. This is a really, really impactful dream for me. In my dream, I see this little girl sitting on a blanket of all things, and it's me and I'm watching me. And I had this dream probably like at early teenager, I believe this cute, chubby, chubby baby with like dark, dark ringlets. And I'm sitting there looking at her. And all of a sudden I realize that I'm in the dream. I'm me. And so I see me as a child and I'm watching me. I know everything, absolutely every detail, every emotion, every heartbreak, every pain point of my life that is to come. Like I know it intimately because it's me. And then in my dream, I realize that I'm my mother. I'm the baby's mom. So I'm me and I'm mom. And I know every, every detail of the pain that my baby girl is going to go through because she's me. Like I know it intimately and my heart broke for her. And I was just weeping and weeping like a mom would weep for her child who would know this. And then I heard the voice of God. This will make me teary. He said, that's how I feel about you. That's who I am for you. And I know every detail and my heart is broken for you. And, and just having that different perspective of who God was, because I was being taught and in some ways, I mean, not to discredit my parents, but being treated like I did not have any value and that I was this problem and that I was to be sent away and discarded and worked like, you know, somebody in a concentration camp because of my sins. Right. I was having these like spiritual experiences that were telling me mm -hmm. otherwise that were telling me, uh-uh, this is wrong. And my heart towards you is so different and so opposite of that. And also on the flip side, I was experiencing those things. I was also experiencing some really dark stuff too, like some other spiritual, like oppressive, dark things that were inexplainable. And so I just made a decision inside of myself. I think this is maybe the ultimate answer. You know, I don't know about what's going on outside here. There's all sorts of horrible things that are coming at me. And some of them have good intention, even. Some of them are think they're doing the best for me, even while they're hurting me. And I could choose to partner with that and hold on to that and, and cause myself to just interact on that level. Or I have the opportunity or the chance to partner with life, to see this with a different perspective. 
I hope this is making sense. This is very, very difficult to explain. And if I do that, I actually don't have to carry this message and wear it like it's my identity. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying right now, I didn't just learn that and and it didn't just like shift my feelings or, or whatever for my parents immediately, but it's been a theme in my life and it's continued to grow. And I've had situations where I've had to choose that again and again and again, all that to say, and here's another part of your answer. Oh yeah. I went through a season when I got back from that, I was angry. I rate, and I did have a season of just like throwing all of everything I believed out the window and, and wanting to do go the polar opposite. I had another season of severe depression and suicidal ideation. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot that happened. It wasn't smooth. It wasn't beautiful. But I think there was this thread that wove through it that was always offering a perspective that was incredibly life-giving. Unfortunately, that seems to be more rare in these kind of situations because, you know, you hear someone who goes through these types of experiences and rightfully so, and naturally, it makes sense yeah. that they would want nothing to do with it because why would you Absolutely. Why would you choose to lean into something that has caused you so much pain? Why do you think it was different for you? I don't, I don't have a good answer for that because I wouldn't, there's not any part of me that would want to say, well, I did this this right. way. And so, you know, I had a different outcome that didn't lead me to just like shit all over right. everyone and whatever. I, I don't a hundred percent know Amanda, but the things that I am glad that I did is I'm glad that I chose to dig deep and I'm glad I chose to hold on to what was life-giving inside of my spirit, inside of like my no, like my heart and my mind. I just kept, I kept reaching out for it. Yeah. I think too, it's just evidence that at the end of the day, truth will be revealed. And this is in, you know, any mm-hmm. situation, but in the character mm-hmm. of God will be revealed despite what we as humans yeah. display it as. hundred percent. You've come back from the training center You are back in your house with your family. If your family has disengaged, when did you guys start disengaging from all of this? You want to know something crazy? I found this out this weekend because I had no idea. I forgot this. Blocked this memory out. My siblings and I were talking about this recently because they came into town and they had watched my my stories on Instagram. So we start talking about it. My younger sister says to me, don't you remember when we sat mom and dad down and we told them that this was wrong and off and we didn't want to be a part of it anymore? And I'm like, she's like, we're the reason why we're not a part of it anymore. I'm like, what? No, I don't remember that at all. So yesterday I called, so there were three of us apparently. Yesterday I called the other sister. I'm like, uh, this is news to me. Is this how we got out? And she said, yeah. She said, After we had come back from one of these trainings, we all sat down together. So me and then my younger sister, Charlotte, my younger sister, Sherea, were some of the youngest in the family. We sat down and talked together and said, this is wrong. There is something deeply, deeply wrong with this and off about this. And we sat our parents down and we told them, this isn't right. We don't, I don't know if we were able to describe exactly what was wrong, but we were saying something is wrong, something is off, and we do not want to be a part of this anymore. And to my parents' credit, they said, okay. They were like, well, we think it's pretty good and helpful, but if that's how you feel about it, we'll be done. And that was it. I I forgot this. I literally learned this this weekend, which I think is wild. wild. But that's how we we got out of the program. But what I'll say, Amanda, is like, You can take the girl out of the program. It's hard to take the program out of the girl. And so even though we were disengaged from it as far as our curriculum and attending the events, the belief systems continue to underscore in our lives. And it still, for me, is this process of uprooting Mm -hmm. them, trying to figure out what's right, what do I throw out? And it will probably continue the rest of my life to try to disengage from this way of thinking, this way of relating with God, relating with myself, relating with the world, relating with my family. It's it's all a work in progress and it will continue to be. How did it influence your marriage and just relationships in general? Because I feel like that aspect of shame and submission and authority and everything within a marriage is just, man... I can't imagine. It can be so taken advantage Mm. of. 
correct? And I didn't have a voice. And again, I want to be so careful towards my ex-husband because I don't want to share anything that's his Mm. to share, right? So I'll keep this from to my, you know, this is my stuff to share. But, But inside of that marriage, I didn't feel like there was any accountability for for my husband. I felt like if like it's up to him and God whether he treats me with respect, love, um, propriety. And if he doesn't, I have no recourse. Divorce is not an option. My only recourse was to pray that God would change his heart. And I did that for so many years. And I never stood up for what was right when I should have. And it took me a really, really long time and things to get really, really bad. And for that, um, that tendency I had to, to what it is, is spiritually bypass what was going on and say, God's going to take care of it, right? As long as I live rightly before for God, and as long as I pray, God will eventually step in and change the situation instead of what I would tell someone now, which is if you're being treated in that way, you say no, and then you, you get out. Do you know what I'm saying? And so I did that for a really long time. And the more that I behaved in that way, the worse things Mm. became. And I remember um, getting in a therapist's office and she heard what was going on. It was like our intake. And she looked at me and she was like, it's like, I know I'm only hearing one side of the story, she said, but you just told me a whole bunch of stuff. Anyone with one of these things would have been gone a long time ago. And you have five. What are you doing? But it was this mentality and this mindset and really, truly a deep, deep belief system that it was my responsibility to stay and pray mm-hmm. and wait, right? And that was what I was required to do if I were to really be following God in my, in my, um, in my life. And so it ended up being really difficult even to switch from that mindset to a place where I was willing to say, Hey, this is not okay anymore. And if it doesn't change, then I need to leave. Hmm. How has it impacted your parenting? There are aspects that, and I, and I really don't want to completely shit on everything that you know, you mm, experience because there are some really great aspects to it and mm-hmm. foundational mm-hmm. Um, truths and really great life lessons in there. So sure. how have you sifted through everything and figured out kind of your direction in parenting? Gosh, imperfectly, like incredibly imperfectly. <laughs> I've found one thing that has shifted as I've shifted from certain mindsets into where I'm currently at is that there was a level of fear and control that I was carrying with me when I was parenting previously. And what I've learned over these last few years, well, I'll tell you a phrase that comes to mind. And it was one that I started to learn as I started to dig through some of my belief systems and face face them and throw out what I found wasn't helpful and, and really understand why believed what I kept with me, I, this confidence in that began to grow in me. And I realized as confidence began to grow in me and what I believed, so did compassion. It was like they were parallel. And so the more confident I was in who I was and who God is and how the world works, the less I felt like I need to control and manage. And the more curious and compassionate I started to become, even in my parenting, the less afraid I started to become. And that's been such a wild shift. My, my kids will mention it. What happened Mm. to you? (laughs) Right. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It's just a a deeper trust that they're held, that they're okay, that they're on a journey and that they're going to figure it out. And I don't need them to believe exactly how I believe. I don't need them to adhere to all these rules in order for them to be safe, which is stuff I just thought before because I was raised that way. Right. And there are some things that they're probably, they're going to mess up and do imperfectly and they probably will get hurt, but also to have even a different perspective on that, to recognize that they're going to 
they're going to grow and be all right. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the best way forward for them instead of sitting them on a blanket and smacking Mm -hmm. their hand whenever they get off so that they listen to Mm -hmm. me and so that they obey me, right? Have you had a conversation with your parents since this one that you don't remember (laughs) about (laughs) any of this? On and off. And, you know, it's an interesting situation because I love my Mm -hmm. parents and I admire them and respect them. And in so many ways, they sacrificed all of their wants and needs, even needs, I would say, to homeschool 11 kids mm-hmm. on a single income. I mean, they, they they expended their entire adult life to raise us as best as they knew mm-hmm. how and to give us any opportunity that they thought would be good for us. So I look, I like I stand back and I see that and I'm in awe and I'm so grateful mm-hmm. and I'm so thankful that they've given me the gifts that they have because they really have installed a different way of, or a certain way of thinking or a certain way of trying to figure things out that I really, really appreciate. And on the flip side, we don't see everything the same way. And so it's, it's just, there are careful conversations. Mm -hmm. There are are from both Mm -hmm. sides, right? Like they, they're careful. I'm careful. There's intentionalities of, communicating, even if there's maybe a little bit of a uh, language barrier, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, it, and it continues to be a journey. And isn't that I'm any hopeful. parent-child relationship? Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if it was sure. a cult or, you know, what, like, sure. that is any dynamic between parent sure. and adult children. Yeah. Um, because yeah, especially absolutely. as the older we get and as we become parents and everything, you, you're figuring it out as you go and you really do just try yeah. to do the best you can with where you are and mm-hmm. what you have. You know, anyone can look back and think of ways that they wish parents did things differently or things that caused pain or whatever, but our kids are going to do the same thing about us. So absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's such mm-hmm. a, a gift that you guys have that mutual respect for each other where, you know, you can approach mm-hmm. things when necessary, yeah. but also you have grace that everybody's just doing the best they can. <laughs> yeah, they really are. And also we don't have to be on the same page yep. about this. That's okay. Yep. You, you know, we don't have to see this the same way in order for me to love and respect mm-hmm. you. I think that's a big Absolutely. one. Were there any resources as you started kind of shifting mindsets and mm. belief systems that were helpful or useful for you? Mm, that's that's a good question. So one of a big part of my journey, I mean, I had different iterations of it. And so my young adult self, my early parenting self, right? And in each one, there was kind of a shifting and a growth, I hope, along the journey. But the most recent one was when my marriage ended. And, and some of this had to do with um, my husband at the time leaving the faith that we had together and and joining a different one. And during that process, there was a lot of questioning of my beliefs from him. And it was really incredibly uh, disorienting, I would say, process because I had already questioned a lot and thrown out a lot. And then um, and then his voice was saying over and over that actually all of this is toxic and repressive and should be thrown aside. And so eventually he's not in the house anymore and wanting to honestly face those questions and slightly confused again. I'm right. like, well, is this toxic? Like, right. It, what, what is this that I believe? And I went on this massive, deep dive, Amanda. I let, it's like, how can I even say resources? I started reading and researching everything I could get my hands on, um, listening to any podcast that I could. I was really searching for what is a healthy belief yeah, system, yeah. right? What does a healthy belief system regarding spirituality actually look like? And what I realized is that I had this really truncated view of my beliefs. So imagine a tree, right? And I'm looking at the trunk of it and I understand my belief systems to this extent. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't understand necessarily was where these things came from, like the roots of the tree, 
And what I also didn't understand fully was the implications of my belief systems, right? So these are the leaves of the tree. So I'm just kind of looking, I was holding these belief systems. They work for me today. But what I ended up doing was going on this wild journey of being like, where did all this come mm-hmm. from? And where is it all heading? And during that time, really nothing was off limits for me to study. I just I was like, I went crazy. I was, I was, in, <laughs> I was in, just intent on understanding my belief systems. That was a, a deep revolutionary time for me. And I was able to find something that was so full of life. Could you give any encouragement, advice, feedback to someone who has gone through a similar religious experience, upbringing, and in turn has chosen to um, either leave the faith completely or, um, you know, is really just wrestling with kind of the light and dark of it all? What would you tell someone who is, is in the middle of that? One thing I would say is be an honest seeker. I think it can be easy when we're trying to find truth or we're trying to disengage from something that's hurtful. We, we sometimes just look in the areas we feel comfortable looking mm. or that we want to look. And I would, I would just encourage you, go search it and wrestle it to the ground. If you have doubts, don't ignore them lean into them. Don't be afraid of any of it because what is true, and you pointed on this earlier, Amanda, what is true is going to last and what is not true will be revealed. And another thing that I would say, if if somebody's in that place and they're confused or they've been hurt by a religious viewpoint um, or they're disillusioned about who God is, um, but they still have a, just a little bit of faith enough to talk to him to pray, I would say, ask him very specifically to reveal to you what you're looking for. So this is something that I did in my darkest period of life. And I, I, or not life, but like after my marriage, the darkest part of it, I was like, I don't know if any of this is true. I don't know if this religious faith that I was raised in, if any of it's true or not, or if it's the worst thing in the world, I don't know. But I do know that I've had experiences that were so good and I'm not ready to let those go, right? And so I had enough faith to sit in my bed. I would do this in the morning. I'd get the kids on the bus and I'd sit in my bed and I would just say, God, what is the gospel and why is it good news? What is it? And why is it good news? Like to me right now, it seems like bad news. And I don't understand why you would even call it good news if you're right <laughs> in the Bible. And then I would start to study and research and look. And then the next morning I'd get up and before I started my day, I'd be like, God, what is the gospel and why is why is it good news? For a long time, I was too disillusioned to pick up my Bible, but then I did after some time, but not with the intent of like, just like ingesting it and taking it at face value, but to really study it and see like, is this toxic? Like I actually want to know. And so I started reading in ways of looking for the things that would be a problem. And when I found it, I'd stop and then I'd research the heck out of it. And I'd go all, I would nerd out like crazy. Crazy. So it would be like the verse and I would under, like, I'd try to research it in that way. And then I'd say, okay, well, what about this concept? And then I'd start reading like, historically, what does this concept mean? And all, I just, I just went crazy on it. But what ended up happening for me is that question was answered in a really beautiful way. I don't have a better answer for anyone else because it really is going to be your own personal journey that you go down. But if you, if you have the faith, ask for what you need or what you're looking for. And just be honest with yourself about where you're looking and, and look everywhere mm-hmm. to try to find the truth. I think that's such a good word because another aspect of the shame that can be instilled from that process or those experiences, it, that shame will arise when you start questioning because, you know, you're taught to mm-hmm. not question. And so yep. – That when you talk about being an honest seeker, for me, that has definitely brought up feelings of shame and like I'm doing something Mm -hmm. wrong by even questioning. But you're stuck in the same Mm -hmm. cycle of unknown and confusion and lack of clarity and whatever else, which at the end of the day is exactly what's going to keep you from finding the truth. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I don't usually ask 
guess this because it's not the point of this podcast isn't for promotion or anything like that. It's really just being mm-hmm. honest and sharing our stories so that we mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. less alone and have, you know, can better understand ourselves based on what other people have experienced as well. But I really yeah. love how you're using your platform to mm-hmm. share your story and share your experience. And yeah. you dig into everything from being a single mom to your divorce to this experience. So I would love if you could just share with everyone where they can find you so that they can continue being encouraged by you. Thanks, Amanda. Yeah, you can find me House on a Sugar Hill across all social platforms. And online, you can find me at www.houseonasugarhill.com. So easy peasy. Love it. Thank you so I'd love, much yep. for sharing. Oh my gosh, really of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow and rate and review. That helps get the word out. Next on Revive. I think I got really suckered in to like needing the labels and needing the car and needing the house and needing, you know, the vacations to fit into what an entrepreneur and like this is what is successful looks like and that's something that I've always wanted and now that I have it I'm like but am I happy because I have it like that no